Well, welcome one and all. Welcome uh, at watching at home. Today's a very special day in the life of our church. Uh, it's fitting that we celebrate. We give thanks to God for his faithfulness through the generations and the leaders have gone before us who've been faithful uh, for what God has, has given to them uh, and have produced much. So I'd like to point out a couple of special people here this morning and ask us to hold our applause. A great honor that Pastor Frank and Billy Joe are here uh, last official Sunday in his capacity as pastor, but he's, gonna, he's not going anywhere. Uh, but also uh, joining us today is uh, Pastor Mark Fisher and his wife, Carol, who is our mission pastor and outreach pastor. Where's, where's Mark? Pastor Mark, where are you? And we have our pastor emeritus, our, uh, Frank's first boss here, uh, our pastor emeritus, uh, Pastor David Deal and his wife, Nancy. Let's, where are they? They're in the dark over there. They can waving. Let's give them all a big hand. So thankful they could all be here this morning. Big celebration, and, and, and thank you for, for all of your service and, and love. We're going to turn back to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, where we left off last week. So I invite you to, to turn your Bibles to chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. Paul's prayed for the Ephesian saints that they would know God better. That's where we left off last week. He prays that they would know God better, that the eyes of their heart would be open to all of the spiritual blessings that are theirs in Christ. And he emphasizes at the end of that prayer that they would, they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards those who believe. Oh, middle schoolers are dismissed. There they go. With God's saving power top of mind, he's just written that, we continue into chapter 2. God's saving power to save sinners from death to life by grace. And Paul's going to demonstrate here God's power is his love, his mercy, his kindness, but most powerfully, his saving grace. And so this morning, uh, it's fitting that we have a very straightforward three-point sermon and really, the whole outline is there right in the title, Death to Life by Grace. This is one of the most clear statements, crystal clear, beautiful statements of the gospel you'll ever find. If you want to lead someone to Christ, you want to share the gospel, you want to answer some of those questions, no better place than to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Verses 1 to 3, diagnosis our condition, B.C., before Christ. He says, spiritually, we're dead. Verses 4 to 7 says that we've been saved from spiritual death and brought to life. And then the final verses, 8 to 10, says that salvation is a work of God by his grace. It changes everything. So I just want to walk through this passage for a few minutes. I have your attention, your attention at home. We'll read a little bit. I'll share a few words, and then we'll close in prayer. Let's look at the first three verses, verses one to three. Again, Paul's just been praying this powerful prayer of the work and the wonder of Jesus that he holds all power and all authority, all dominion, all of his enemies are under his feet. He's in charge of everything, verse one. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, 
like the rest of mankind. The Bible's diagnosis of our spiritual condition without Christ is that we are dead in sin. Now you look around the room, you look around your neighborhood, you look around the world, people are very much alive, aren't they? Walking, talking, living, thinking, creating, doing life, but, but spiritually, your spiritual condition, according to Scripture, is one of death, one of, of no light. Why? Because we are alienated from God, and that alienation from God, who is the, the source of life, means that we do not spiritually live. The Bible doesn't teach that we're just sick and we need some medicine. And the Bible doesn't say, well, we're just wandering kind of aimlessly. We just need some directions. It says, no, you are spiritually dead. You are lost in your sin. Look what Paul adds. He says, you were dead in trespasses. That's breaking God's law. Have you ever think of a sign you see no trespassing? And then you keep walking onto someone's property and it says, beware of dog. And then you keep walking and it says, the owner of this house is armed. And you just keep walking. That's, that's the trespasses. That's a dead-end street. Dangerous place. Dead also in sins, underlying sins. The Greek word there means to miss the mark. You think of an archer taking aim with a bow and arrow at the target, releasing the arrow, and it misses the mark. We're missing the whole target, not, not only the bullseye. We're missing the point of our life. That's what Paul's saying here. And he's not just saying that this happens occasionally, that occasionally, accidentally, we, we wander into places that we shouldn't go. We trespass into places that we really should have known better. He doesn't say occasionally we, we are aimless and we miss the point of life. Look, it says, in which you once, what? Walked. He's saying this is your MO. This is how You used to live, Ephesians saints, and you're all nodding in agreement because you know this was you before. You know these were your daily habits. You're ignoring the warning signs. You're missing the point. Now, it wasn't just the fact that you were trespassing and committing sins. Paul goes a little deeper. Look look at verse 2. He points out in verses 2 and 3, three powerful influences in our world. Number one, the world. Quote, following the course of the ways of the world. The course of the ways of the world come in many different forms, don't they? Pop culture, the the forms of group think in society, where we're being conformed to think a certain way, act a certain way. We're hearing messages out in media and in our world that this is how we're supposed to conform. It might be conforming to a Peer pressure, our students just left, they know about peer pressure, but does peer pressure ever really leave? Aren't we all still trying to keep up with the Joneses? Aren't we adults still sort of in middle school? (laughs) Measuring up? Trying to run the rat race? All those things kind of fit under this idea, this rubric of the world. That's, That's the first influence. The second influence is following, quote, the prince of the power of the air, a.k.a. the devil, but the one who influences the evil one that, that tempts and trips us up and snares. Devil in the Old Testament, Satan, Satan, the accuser, the one that's always laying a trap out there to trip you up. He says, this is also an influence. There's the influence outside of us, 
the whole world around us, misdirecting us into trespassing and into sin. The devil tempting us and snaring us, putting us into bondage. And then the third one, he says, is the passions of the flesh. That's our out-of-whack, inner, immature, selfish, base urges. I was a psych major in college at a public university, nothing at all about theology, but it was all there, the base urges of us that we're constantly fighting with these urges and desires. And who's really in control of how we think and behave? So people sit in a counselor's office and they talk through their insecurities, their fears. And it's all right here, influencing us away from life, alienation, rebellion against God. Think about it this way. Think about how many celebrities you know who get massively sidetracked and fall into despair with addiction. If you ever think about that, musicians, artists, actors, why, why do they just fall apart when they've reached such heights? It's because they've been after that height. Once I have enough money, then everything will be okay, right? Once I have fame, once I have, ha- have everyone's attention, then it's all gonna work out. Well, what happens when you reach that height? You're still empty inside. There's still a hole. You've got nowhere to go. It's dead end. This is the Bible's depiction and description of the human condition, spiritually speaking. Simply put, things are not the way they're supposed to be. So if you had stayed in that condition, Paul's saying to the Ephesians, if you'd stay stuck there, the Bible says, separated from God, from the source of life, if you had stayed dead in your sin, enslaved by these forces, it would have led to final judgment and ultimate separation from God in hell. And nobody wants to hear that message anymore. Least of all those three influences. The world doesn't want to hear it. The influences around us in culture, certainly the devil doesn't want, no, no. You can have it all, even in our own selves. But it is, my friends, the God honest truth. We're dead in sin. Look for verses four to seven. Here comes the good news. Here comes the gospel news. You can boil it down into two words. You've got like one minute with someone to share the good news. Just, ha- just circle those two words, but God. That's it. Like, oh, but God. You've covered the gospel. But God, verse four, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And you see that dash there, it's just a pause. Just, just revel in that, Ephesians. Saints, this is where you are now. By grace, you've been saved Verse six and seven, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I just want to savor this. I want to be here all morning with these words. Paul is reminding the saints in Ephesus of their new spiritual condition. They were six feet under, dead man walking down in the depths, the lowest point 
uh, in America is Death Valley. And now zing, by verse four, in two words, by God, they go to the top of Mount Whitney. Sorry to those who've, who've climbed Rainier. I'm sure, Pastor Dave, you've climbed Rainier and Whitney a bunch of times. Rainier's the highest mountain by about 400 feet, isn't it? We've gone from the depths of despair to the utter heights of glory. But God, and if you have your own copy of your scripture, I'd love for you to underline, circle these words, rich in mercy, great in love for us. While we were yet sinners, while we were dead to rights, he made us right. He rescued us. He made us whole and alive in Christ. It's worth being reminded of the meaning of these words. Mercy is mightier than judgment. It's God withholding punishment we deserve because Christ endured that punishment on the cross. Love is braver than fear. It's God's deep affection for scummy person like me. What do we sing? A wretch like me. Kindness is stronger than cruelty. It's God's compassion in becoming a human being, of leaving heaven and coming and walking among us and being one of us to exchange his place for ours on the cross. And grace is more powerful than condemnation. It's God's generous, undeserved, unearnable gift of new life. We used to sing, Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Does anyone remember that one? I'm not going to sing it. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace is greater than what? All of our sins, all of my sins. And God's grace is greater than all of that. I see your grace on the table. I see your sin on the table. I'm going to raise you to infinity and call it by my grace. Paul's just prayed for the saints that they would keep in mind, friends, that we wouldn't go down a, a, a train to nowhere, that we would keep in mind God's power. And he says here, God's power is his love, his mercy, his kindness, but most of all, his grace to save. By grace, you have been saved. Look at verses six and seven. This is remarkable. We hear these words. I want you to chew on this for a moment. Even as Jesus was raised from the grave. It was resurrection power that raised Jesus from the grave. Even that it was the Holy Spirit's power that ascended him into heaven. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. Listen. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, verse 7, no, excuse me, verse verse 6. He says all this, but look at the, the context. He's saying to you, saints, hey, you Ephesians. Yeah, I'm talking to you. This is about you and Jesus. You've been raised up from the dead. You have ascended into heaven. You are now in the presence of God. And those Ephesians are standing around thinking, this doesn't look like heaven. That's why Paul's praying, Lord, give them eyes, their hearts to see their new spiritual condition that they are now Alive by your mercy, by your love, your kindness, and your grace. They are now redeemed, forgiven, embraced, and adopted as your child. Does a child ever stop being a parent's child? Those of us that are parents, if sons and daughters, 
They can do some really dumb stuff, can't they? Mean things. They can lash out at you, can't they? Do they ever stop being your son or daughter? No. Always and forever. Why? Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The gospel changes everything. We're saved from death to life by grace. We're saved from a dead end way to a living bright path. So often when we think of salvation, we think of it being saved from something, right? We're being saved from some threatening peril. So you, you watch in the evening news and it reports that uh, some people were out uh, uh, on the lake sailing and the boat capsized uh, and they were going to drown, but the rescue boat came in and saved them, right, from, from certain death. And so we think about that and certainly scripture speaks to that, that we are saved from something. We're saved from an eternity being separated from God and now we're going to be with God in heaven. But I want us to also think about what Paul's teaching here in the letter to the Ephesians and truly throughout all of the New Testament. Now, salvation is not simply being saved from something and some distant uh, glory in the future. Now, Scripture also speaks, and here it speaks here, we are being saved for something. We are being saved to something. And so Scripture speaks very much in defining salvation, not only of being rescued, but also of being restored, being made whole again being reconciled to God, being brought to life, having those fears, those anxieties, that pain, the balm of God's grace. So I want you to consider, what are you saved to and what are you saved for? Look at verses 8 to 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul stresses the point that we are saved by God's grace and not by anything else that we bring, that it's only God's grace, God's undeserved gift being worked out in the finished work of Christ, and that it's by faith, and, and he's going to teach here in other scriptures that even faith itself is a gift of the Holy Spirit, that we would trust Jesus, that we would pledge allegiance to Jesus. That itself is a gift. In all of my years of sharing the gospel message with neighbors, friends, perfect strangers, I found it's hardest to communicate this point, that you bring nothing to the table but your need when it comes to salvation. It seems like the hardest thing to explain. It's only in conversations with a person who's really at the end of the rope, who's lost everything. It's really in conversations with someone who says, I have nothing but Jesus, that they realize he's all they need. But for the rest, so often, the conversation is that, 
Yeah, but, yeah, 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 but, but what about my record? What about the things I've done? What about how I compare to the other? The gospel says, accept it. You are accepted. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. Friends, that is very humbling. It kind of gets to our pride, right? Like, shouldn't it be us against them? We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. Isn't that we're trying to get them from their team to the winning team? No. If you understand God's grace, greater than all our sin, it's a source of humility. It's a source like a, a beggar coming into the, the room, fearful, being called by the master to the table and being given food and taking the food and then finding other beggars to serve. Far from making us more prideful, rightly knowing God's grace makes us more humble. That yes, we are saved from an eternity separated from God, but we are saved for something and to something, to the restoration where God is doing right now. That you step from death to spiritual life by grace, and you have now entered into what we call God's new society, the kingdom of God. Jesus came saying, proclaiming, the kingdom of God is close at hand. It's here. Look at verse 10. For we are his, what? Workmanship, the Greek word poema, it means a work of art. We meet poema, that's where we get the word in English, poem. He said, We are God's workmanship, saying, You are a work of art from God. You are God's poem. The best translation that I've ever heard uh, translating this is, You are God's masterpiece. The master created you. And think about the value of art. What makes something valuable? Well, it's beauty, it's, it's specialty, but what else? It's uniqueness, right? One of a kind. You can go and, and buy a thousand copies of something, it's not going to be worth much, but one of a kind. You are God's masterpiece. There's no one on God's green earth like you. And some of us think God made a mistake. Some of us think, Lord, you, know, you didn't make me tall enough. It's, it's not all it's cracked up to be, believe me. Head rushes and, yeah, sitting on airplanes. Oh, God, why, why did you land me in this family or in this situation? Oh, why couldn't I have more of this kind of gifting or more of this kind of personality? Why do I, I have to suffer with this kind of ailment in my body, in, in my mind? He says, you were crafted by the creator of the universe, he created you, and now he's made you, saints, anew in Christ Jesus. He saved you, restored you, brought you to the new future for a present purpose. And what is that purpose? To just take your little salvation and, and head home until, until he comes? To share, to model, live it out. To live what? God's mercy, God's kindness, love of God, and to be instruments of God's grace. We follow the example of our Lord Jesus. We say, we're a part of God's plan to restore heaven and earth. Quote, created in Christ Jesus 
for good works, which God prepared long ago beforehand, that we should what? Occasionally do it? A little arm twisting from the pulpit to sign up for helping in, in Sunday school? No, that we should walk in them. We used to walk in a dead-end way. That was our habit. That was our day-to-day. Now we should walk in a new way. We should walk in these ways, this restored way, this way of bringing mercy and kindness and love and grace. And when you see men and women who've lived that way, decades upon decades faithfully, we say, what a wonder. What a wonder. These first 10 verses are about the gospel, being reconciled to God. Come back next week. We're going to talk about being reconciled to one another. Invite Rob and the team to come up and Let's sing one more about evidence. Evidence of God's grace, God's love, God's working in our lives.